We thank you for the astonishing thing that you've given us a word that we can hear, uh, that we can listen to, that we can hear you speak to us. We pray, please, your blessing on our time, that you would cause it to the case that uh, I, I speak clearly and faithfully and truthfully, and you might help us have soft hearts to your word, that we might hear what you have to say, uh, be uh, impacted deeply by it, and be transformed and changed by it. We ask that you might work amongst us, please, by your spirit tonight. Amen. Well, I want to show you a picture um, and uh, uh, give you some sense of uh, what God has done in the Bible. Here's the picture. Now, I don't, some of you may have seen this, kind of did the rounds on social media a little while ago, and uh, let me explain what it is. Uh, on the left of centre is the Old Testament, uh, kind of Genesis, order of books all the way to Malachi. And on the right of centre is the New Testament, kind of Matthew all the way to Revelation. And those little arcs are the times when a part of the Old Testament is fulfilled in the New or alluded to, connected in the New. Uh, what it shows you is a massive number of arcs where the New Testament rests on the Old, where it fulfills the Old, either by an explicit prophecy or by a type which becomes an anti-type, um, uh, by a piece of symbolism and so on. Extraordinary, and you look at it, there's scores of these pieces. Um, the, the, the impact, the, the connection between the two testaments, and if you are new with us, then uh, basically the first two-thirds of the Bible uh, is the Old Testament, and the last one-third is the, the Old Testament, and the last one-third is the New Testament, which is about Jesus. And what in kind of very uh, vivid way the connection between those two testaments. And it is astonishing. Now, you might imagine that it could be possible for a modern author to somehow create some large work uh, where they have two halves and they kind of all of the, you know, like a Lord of the Rings book where there's all of this integration back and forward between prophecy and fulfilment and so on and so forth. And you can imagine an author doing this perhaps spending a lifetime creating a history that connects him with a future time. Um, but here's the deal. Firstly, they'd have to be pretty clever to pull that off. And secondly, that thing's been achieved by 40 different authors. It's one thing to have one author who can hold it all and pull it all together. That's been done by 40 different authors, many of whom didn't know each other, wrote independently of each other. And yet the whole thing is united and connected and intertwined over a thousand years in different places in the world, writing these different documents. Now, I, I share that all of share that in one sense just for your encouragement. There is no other book like the Bible. It is a miracle that it, it looks like it does. It is its evidence, it's the evidence of God's hand at work, just itself. Now, there's the first thing, just for your encouragement. But I want to also show you that to highlight an important point, which is how important it is to recognise you cannot properly understand some parts of the New Testament without understanding the connections into the Old Testament. You, you can't properly understand some parts of the New Testament without understanding the context that comes from the Old Testament. And this is particularly so in the part of the Bible we're looking at tonight. We're set to look at John chapter 1, uh, verse 19. We're now into the record of the events of the life of Jesus. 
Do you remember the last couple of weeks, if you were with us, we were looking at the prologue, the first 18 verses, and the first 18 verses are like an introduction to the whole book, and the first 18 verses kind of just, here's John the author telling you how to make sense of all the events that he's going to tell us about, how to join the dots, what themes to look for, how to get the narrative right to make sense of all that's coming. But we've done that, we engaged with that the last few weeks. Now John starts recording the events themselves. I've told you how to read it, now I'm going to tell you all of these events. Um, But here's the thing, the first event he records, so grab your Bibles, John chapter 1, the first event that he records, verse 19, is an experience of a man called John the Baptist. Now he doesn't call him the Baptist, but that's who he is, he's John the Baptist, even the other accounts, you'll see that language used of him. John, the author, the Apostle John, is different to, verse 19, the John being spoken about here, and he just calls him John, but he's John the Baptist. And uh, for most of us, it's kind of odd. In fact, I I think for most of us, the whole John the Baptist thing is kind of odd. I mean, we realise it happened, we realise John the Baptist was a figure of history, there's undoubtedly the case, extra-biblical evidence gives us the truth of John the Baptist as a person, there was a man... But here's the, why does, why does every single gospel, why is it that every single time someone sits down to write the message of Jesus, they start with John, the Baptist, as the introduction to the whole, why, why, is such a te- why every time do they do that? I mean, you think, lots of you uh, wonderfully are trying to share the gospel of Jesus with your friends, with family and workmates and so on. um, All of us are trying to share it around the place. Hands up how many of you have shared the gospel with a friend and started by talking about John the Baptist? Yeah, none, not one, all right? And you look at kind of various tracts of Christianity, you know, two ways to live. It doesn't ever mention John the Baptist. But here you have every single time the ancients wrote about the Gospel of Jesus, they talked about John the Baptist. Now, why is that? Why did it start so differently? Now, right there is a warning, actually, that if the Bible keeps doing something that we just never would, then what that highlights is perhaps we've not seen something that we're meant to have seen. We're missing a piece. And that's exactly the case. And so... We want to dig into why John the Baptist was such a significant figure and talked about by each of the Gospel writers, what part does he play? Now, why? Why is he so significant? It was a few reasons. One of the first ones is that he was was huge. In his day, he was a rock star. He was like massive, okay? Jesus in Matthew chapter 11 says, there is no one born of a woman which pretty much counts for everybody, yeah? There's no one born of a woman that's greater than John. He is the greatest who has ever been born, says Jesus. Now, that's a big rap. Huge. Um, He was was greater than any human alive, until, of course, the coming of Jesus. We'll look at that in a moment. And he was a prophet. Israel, the nation of Israel, hadn't had prophecy for 400 years. The last book, prophetic book, is the book of Malachi and there'd been no word from God for 400 years until Luke chapter 3 tells us that the word of God came to John and he started preaching. A prophet has now arrived again. It's massive. And he's dressed like a prophet. In fact, he's dressed like the ancient prophet Elijah. You chase up Mark's account of of 
John the Baptist and you'll find the language there used uh, traces all the way back to Elijah and what he wore and what he ate and where he lived. He speaks like a prophet. He is a tough man, he's courageous, he's fearless. And thousands of Israel people went out to him to be baptised by him, which was something new. Um, Just for your information, baptism was something the Jews did, as far as we can tell in the early first century, we've got evidence of this quite explicitly, that they did baptise people, but only pagans who were becoming Jews. So so if if a a non-Jewish family wanted to become Jewish and enter into the Jewish faith, then the parents and their infants, incidentally, would all be baptised. They'd be baptised to symbolically express the cleansing from paganism, the washing away of the corruption and pollution of paganism so that they can enter into the Jewish uh, family of God. And incidentally as well, when they had kids, any more kids, they weren't baptised because they were born now to cleansed Jewish people. But they were bap- they'd baptised pagans. But here's John calling for Israel to be baptised, to be cleansed. It's an astonishingly new thing that was happening. You know, uh, uh, the religious leaders, therefore, verse 19, went out to find out what was happening. They didn't go out to be baptised. They weren't into what John was doing, but they went out to find what was happening. Uh, And in a real sense, John the Baptist is the link between the Old Testament and the New. See, why does he matter so much? Because Jesus says he's the greatest who's ever been born, because he's a prophet like they've never had a prophet before, he's doing something new, and he's the link. He's the last of the Old Testament prophets who's handing on the baton to a whole new era. He's witnessing to the coming of the new covenant. And so, in the Jewish context, that is massive, it's monumental. He is the last great one, he's the hinge of the turning of the ages. Now, we don't notice John because we don't notice how monumental that turning was. We don't appreciate what it was to live under the Mosaic Covenant and to finally have a new covenant. Uh, Jesus arrived. Um, Most of what John says trades on Old Testament thought. Uh, So he's the last of the Old Testament prophets, he hinges into the new, but he also says lots of stuff that depends for its insight and understanding on the Old Testament. Let me give you some examples, let me give you the four of them actually. You can see there in verse 21, um, there's a series of questions asked about who he is, are you the Elijah, are you the prophet, are you the Messiah? All of that language comes out of the Old Testament, I'll show you that in a moment. But he also, John himself, identifies himself, verse 23, as a voice calling in the wilderness, make straight the way from the Lord. That's a quote from the Old Testament. Then John identifies Jesus, verse 29, as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That depends on the Old Testament to make sense of it. And then finally, in verse 33, he talks about Jesus as the man who uh, will baptise with the Holy Spirit will baptise with the Holy Spirit. Now, that depends on the Old Testament. 
And it's important, it actually illustrates the thing I want to talk to you about tonight, which is you cannot understand the New Testament, many of the New Testament pieces properly until you understand the Old Testament context. And baptism in the Spirit is a classic one of this. Baptism in the Spirit is a, a key teaching in a modern movement called the Pentecostal movement. And uh, one of the key defining features of the Pentecostal movement, which is spelt out in their statements of faith, is that uh, there's this experience of the Spirit that comes upon a Christian after they've been converted, subsequent to conversion, separate to conversion, often, where they can come to Jesus, become a Christian and later receive the baptism in the Spirit. And the baptism in the Spirit, in their understanding, is about being empowered for ministry and receiving the gift of tongues. Now, they take it from the four or five uses of that phrase in the New Testament. But I want to show you tonight that that understanding fails to appreciate the phrase in its Old Testament context. And when you understand the Old Testament context for the language of baptism of spirit and all these other pieces, it'll change the way you understand it. It'll open a whole new insight into what's going on here, I hope. So here's the deal. Um, what I want to do to you, with you, well, do to you, is, uh, is I, want to, I want to take you through a journey and I'm going to invite you to, I want to ask you to give me 10 minutes, that's all. Well, actually 30 minutes, we'll come to that in a second, but uh, 26 minutes. I want, you to, I want you to give me 10 minutes of concentration, all right? Because uh, I'm going to take you for a, on a journey back into the Old Testament, before we come back to John 1, and I'm going to put a whole bunch of stuff in your head about the Old Testament, and I need you to concentrate. Uh, because all of that background will come, make this passage come to life, all right? So trust me, it'll be worth doing, but uh, kind of slap yourself around, get yourself ready, actually slap your neighbours around, get yourself ready, uh, take a few breaths of air and we'll do some work on the Old Testament. Everyone's finished? Good? Stop. All right. <laughs> Let me go back. Genesis chapter 1. It's a lot of chapters, let's go. <laughs> God makes the world. He makes the universe. He makes humanity and puts them in a garden. And he says it's very good. It's rich. It's beautiful. It's pleasing to the eye. And God is personally with them, walking through the, the, the cool of the afternoon. There's intimate relationship. Humanity, in our pride and foolishness, decide living with God is not the best way to live. We can live for ourselves, that's going to be much better. And so we rebel against him, the first Adam and Eve, throw him off, betray everything that he's given to us. And so what enters into the world is a thing called sin, rebellion against God. And sin and the problem of sin now dominates the Bible from that point on through to the end. What do we do? What, what happens with human sin? How do we deal with human betrayal against God? How do we manage pride, uh, especially with relationship with God? How does God deal with that? How does humans? Exodus chapter 33 says, No one may see God's face and live because of human sin. How do we solve that? God is too pure to even look upon sin. How is sin dealt with? The whole Bible is then about sin and its resolution. Now, what emerges is one answer. 
the sacrificial system. God gives his people a whole series of sacrifices to make it possible to deal with sin. Now, the most vivid example of this is the Day of Atonement. You can read about this in Leviticus chapter 16. In Leviticus chapter 16, there's one day, once a year, when the high priest does an activity of sacrifice to make it possible for the sins of Israel to be covered and God to be able to dwell amongst them. And what happens is a couple of goats are brought. Well, there's a few other things. There's a bull slaughtered and so on. But there's a couple of goats brought. And by lot, they're chosen to do different, two different functions. Uh, one is made the scapegoat. You've heard that phrase. That's where it comes from. The other is made a sacrifice. And what happens is the high priest leans both hands onto the goats and symbolically transfers the guilt of Israel, God's people, onto the animals. He, 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 he's the conduit through which sin and guilt is pressed into these creatures. One of them is sent off into the wilderness. The, the sin of Israel is taken away. The other one is killed and its blood is sprinkled on the altar to make atonement, at one to make it possible for sinners to be at one. How? By the giving of a substitute. God is holy Sin must be punished and judged. And God says it can either be punished in the sinner or a substitute that he provides. And so God in his grace provides this substitute to make atonement, to bring onement back with God, to make it possible for a holy God to forgive sinful humanity, that they might be reconciled back to him. This happens year after year after year after year for centuries. Sin needs to be dealt with. It's serious. God takes it seriously. He's holy. But as the Old Testament goes on, what emerges is that the blood of bulls and goats is not sufficient, really, to deal with sin. How can the blood of an animal pay for the life of a human? And this becomes evident. So a new figure emerges... One called a servant, the servant. And we read about him in Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 talks about a servant who will come, who will be despised and rejected. We won't esteem him, we won't look upon him and see much at all. But he will be one who takes on our suffering and our pain. And in verse 5 of Isaiah 53, he ends up being punished by God for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brings us peace was laid upon him. By his wounds we are healed. It's all substitution language. It's all the language of someone taking it in our place, a substitute, a great substitute, one who can really deal with sin finally. And so... A new covenant is promised. A new way of God relating to humanity. No longer by the law, the Mosaic covenant was the the promise that said, if you can do good enough, if you can keep enough laws, you'll get to God and this doesn't work. And so God now brings a new covenant, a covenant of forgiveness. Jeremiah 31. You see, here's the first of three things. 
Sin needs to be forgiven. And that forgiveness is established in a servant who establishes a new covenant of forgiveness. First. Second. Alongside this in the Old Testament is another piece. It is that humans might not only be forgiven, but changed, transformed. That there might come in the future a new intimacy, a return, if you like, to Eden, where men and women can know God intimately and personally. Return to a better than Eden, actually. Now, back in Moses' day, now, who's Moses? Moses is back in the 1300s or so BC and he's the one who writes much of our first books of the Bible. Well, he gives expression to this idea. He was someone who knew deep intimacy with God. He would go into a thing called the Tent of Meeting and in that he would meet the glory of God and his face would glow when he came out from it. Such was the wonder of it. Now, there was an incident that's recorded for us back then when God blessed 70 other elders in the Israelite camp with the Spirit of God and they began to prophesy. Moses' young protege comes and complains and says, you ought to stop them, you ought to be the only one who has that kind of closeness with God. And listen to what Moses says. Numbers chapter 11 verse 29. I wish that all God's people were prophets and that the Lord would put His Spirit on them. I wish that all God's people would experience the, the Spirit like I've experienced the Spirit. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 29, God Himself says, Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and keep all my commandments. God has this deep desire that His people would be different, transformed, renewed, have new hearts. Hearts that would be so changed they'd want to obey God. They'd want to be in relationship with God from the inside. And the hope was that God would not just be with Israel as a nation, but that he would be with each of his people personally, internally, so close that each of us had his spirit. Isaiah 32, a day is coming when the spirit will be poured out. Isaiah 44, God promises to pour out His Spirit on His people and their descendants. So that verse chapter 39, they might know God, be in intimate relationship with God, with the Spirit dwelling in them each. And this becomes explicit and clear in a chapter, Ezekiel 36, when God promises a day when He would save His people and change them. He would take out their heart of stone, stubbornness and rebelliousness and give them a heart of flesh and give them his own spirit to dwell in them, to move them, to keep his decrees and obey him, to change and transform them. You see, the second thing. First thing is that there's a hope that sin will be dealt with and the penalty of sin will be paid for by a sacrifice. Second thing is that sin will be dealt with such that the power of sin is taken away. So that human hearts are transformed and made new and changed and have the Spirit of God dwelling in them. Third thing. The third thing is the hope in the Old Testament that God would come and do all of this. 
In fact, that he wouldn't just turn up unannounced, but that he would send messengers to let the world know that he's coming to do this. And one of the key messengers is a man called Elijah. You can read about this in Malachi chapter 3 and chapter 4, where God says, there's a great day of the Lord coming when I'll come and cleanse the world, but I'm going to send my servant Elijah before that day to prepare you for it. The Elijah will come. There's also mention in Isaiah chapter 40 of a messenger, a voice who will call out preparing the way for the coming of Yahweh to come and do this work. And the coming of God will be associated with the coming of a prophet. You get this in Deuteronomy 18 where Moses says, God will raise up from amongst you a prophet like me. He'll put his words in his mouth, listen to him. So there's a coming of a prophet and a new king. A new king, a king who comes up in the line of David, 2 Samuel 7, and he comes up as a root from the stump of Jesse, again a reference to King David in Isaiah 9. A king would come, a massive, powerful king, the Messiah. Now, who would this king be? Well, when you look at the book of Isaiah, there's three passages... Isaiah 11, Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 61 that all identified this king as a spirit king. He'll be one upon whom the Spirit of God rests. He'll be one that the Spirit of God um, uh, fills to exercise his ministry. He'll be the spirit king. And this spirit king will bring the new age of the spirit And there'll be forgiveness, the penalty of sin dealt with. There'll be renewal, transformation, the power of sin dealt with. There'll be the Spirit of God now dwelling with people in the age of the Spirit. This is massive. There it is. The Old Testament. A hope that finally sin will be fixed in the lives of God's people by a king, a prophet, a servant who will be the Spirit King all of which will be anticipated by the coming of Elijah. You with me? That's the background. Come with me to John chapter 1 now, and let me show you how it all works. Verse 19. Now this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He didn't fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. I'm not that king that we're waiting for. Well, they said to him, who are you? Are you the Elijah? You may not be the Messiah, but are you the one coming in advance of the Messiah? And he says, oddly, he says, I am not. Now, why is it odd that he says, I'm not the Elijah? Does anyone know? Why is it odd that he says, I'm not the Elijah? Because in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says he is the Elijah. The Elijah has come and it was John the Baptist. And all the hints were there to be seen. But John refuses to acknowledge that esteemed position of the Elijah. They say to him, then are you the prophet? 
What are they asking? They're asking, are you the Deuteronomy 18 man that we've been waiting for, the prophet? He says, no, I'm not the prophet. Finally, they say, well, who are you then? Give us an answer. Why doesn't John just say, I'm John? But anyway, he just, he won't give them anything, right? And eventually, verse 23, he says this, and he replies in the words of Isaiah, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness, make straight the way for Yahweh. God. You see, here's John. I'm I'm not going to take to myself the Elijah. I'm not the prophet. I'm not the Messiah. I'm just a voice. That's all I am. Because here is a humble man. I'm just a voice. You see, John, how does he get to be? Let's think about this just for a moment. How does he get to this place? Jesus says he's the greatest human who's ever lived. He's a towering figure. He has thousands following him. He's a rock star, but he he won't even allow that he's anything of anything. He's just a voice. How do you get to be like that? Great, but not noticing it. Because he is so captivated by Jesus. Verse 26. I baptise you with water, John replies, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. When he compared himself to the people around him, he was a towering figure. But he didn't do that. He was so captivated by Jesus, he didn't notice how he was compared to others. He just noticed how he was compared to Jesus. And he's going, I'm a nothing. Now, brothers and sisters, if you ever struggle with pride, the key is not to look at people around you. Don't, don't look at each other, don't, don't, because you'll find someone who's clearly more lowly than you. It's probably sitting next to you, and you'll probably go, I'm doing pretty well. No, no, what you do is look at Jesus. Be captivated by Jesus, and here's the thing that that does for you. It frees you from even having to worry about yourself. It brings perspective. So I don't have to fight to be significant, because he's the significant one. It's wonderful, it's liberating. John the Baptist was empowered by looking to Jesus and being captivated. Great humility came to him. Now John takes the Isaiah passage and says, here's my sense of myself, I'm just a voice. Now do you remember the Isaiah passage? The Isaiah passage is a reference to the coming of God, Yahweh. It's anticipating the Lord coming and then Jesus arrives. Who is this man? He's a man, John says, he is unworthy to untie his sandals. The greatest man senses the true greatness in Jesus and it's a towering greatness over even him. Then now look verse 29 at what John says about Jesus. He says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What a statement. John says, this man will deal with the sin of all humanity. Not just Israel's sin, but the whole world's sin. He will will bring all of human evil for all the thousands of years together. He He will take all of the hatred and the hostility, and the murder, and the the 
adultery and the abuse and the oppression and the slavery and the selfishness and the greed of all of humanity accumulated over thousands of years. He would take all of that and deal with it. He would take away the sin of the whole world. What a statement. And he would do it as the Lamb of God. Now, if you were there with all that Old Testament background, you would have made these connections. The Lamb of God. Well, we've had lambs being slaughtered for centuries as sacrifices, as a substitute, year after year. And likely you would have connected it to the servant of Isaiah, chapter 53. Because that suffering servant who stands as a substitute, the Lord crushes him and puts our transgressions on him, is talked as of as being a lamb. Who like a lamb is led to the slaughter, he did not open his mouth. And you couldn't help but think of that coming Isaiah 53 servant. The fulfilment has arrived. The one we've been waiting for. The one who will fulfill all the sacrifices of Israel. Because the blood of bulls and goats can't cut it, but the servant will. Now Jesus confirms that exactly this is right. In Mark's Gospel, he says that he comes to give his life as a ransom for many, a substitute. He says in John's Gospel, chapter 10, that unless a grain of seed falls to the ground and dies, it remains a single seed. But if it dies, it produces a crop, a harvest of many. He said this to say what kind of death he was going to die. A substitutionary death. A death that would pay for sin and bring life to others. And when he died... He died at Passover time. Now, if you know your Old Testament, we didn't go there, but there was an event of the Passover where lambs were slaughtered and their blood was shed so that they were safe. He died at Passover time. At the time, the Passover lambs were being slaughtered. It was no accident. It was a symbol become reality. He will take away the sin of the world by being the final great sacrifice that the Old Testament had anticipated. When you go into the New Testament, it's full of the same wonder and insight and understanding of these things. This is not just making it up. John, this author in the book of Revelation, says in verse 5 that we are saved by the blood of Jesus. In chapter 5, he says that we are redeemed by the blood of Jesus. Language that captures exactly these themes. In the book of Hebrews, it says, he was once offered which is a sacrifice. He was once offered to bear the sins of many, our substitute. Peter says, he bore our sins in his body on the tree. Friends, if you have any sense that you need forgiveness before God, then there's a place you can go where you can have everything forgiven where you can be restored and reconciled into relationship with God and the penalty of sin will no longer count against you because the servant has come who was God himself, who bore your sins on the tree and has paid for them once for all. You no longer need to carry the guilt and condemnation of sin. Now, there's no other place you can find this. But there is a place, it's Jesus. 
There is no other name under heaven by which you can be saved. But there is a name, the name of Jesus. The Lamb who takes away the sin of the world, your sin, if you would but let him. But last, John refers to Jesus as the man who will baptise with the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 32. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him, and I myself didn't know him, but the one who sent me to baptise with water said to me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptise with the Holy Spirit. Now, what's being said here? What's being said here is that John is told from the Word of God that the identity of the King who will be the Saviour when he comes, will be evidenced by the Spirit descending on him. Now, where does he get that from? Isaiah. Isaiah 11, Isaiah 42, Isaiah 61. He's the one who will be anointed with the Spirit, the one who the Spirit will come on to empower him to preach the Gospel, so that God unites all of that Bible expectation with the event of baptism and causes His Spirit to descend visibly, not as a magic trick, but visibly so John can make the connections. You're the Isaiah King we've been waiting for. You're the Spirit Messiah. Come finally to bring the age of the Spirit. And what does it mean to say He will baptise with the Holy Spirit? Well... This isn't about tongues. This isn't about some experience after conversion. Not when you understand the Old Testament. Because what's been the Old Testament hopes? Numbers chapter 11. Um, Moses, I long for the day when all God's people have the Spirit of God dwelling in them. Ezekiel 36, you'll take your heart of stone out and put, your, put His own Spirit in you. You'll be, you'll be immersed in the Spirit of God. That's the age to come, the age of the Spirit. Baptised in the Spirit is to be immersed in the Spirit. And this Spirit King comes to bring the Spirit Age when God will now dwell in the hearts of His people in such intimacy that we've never known before, anticipating the final, final outcome in the new creation when we'll see Him face to face. This is about John chapter 3. John chapter 3 is where God describes being born of the Spirit, where being born of the Spirit means you are born anew. This is not an event after conversion, this is another way of talking about conversion. To be baptised in the Spirit is to become a Spirit Christian, which is what being a Christian is. The idea that you need to wait later for this experience is absurd when you understand the context. It fails to see the climactic thing that Jesus is bringing, and it's not tongues. It's a whole new relationship with God where the penalty of sin is paid for and the power of sin is broken in your life. Because anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. You are a spirit Christian now. It's God's final solution through the Lamb who will take away the sin of the world, through the Spirit Baptizer who will enter you into an experience of God Himself, renewed and transformed and changed. Now, do you see what this says to us? 
Do you have any sense of fear of God, the judgment of God, guilt before God? It's been paid for in Jesus. The Lamb of God has taken your sin away. Do you have any sense of brokenness? Do you have any sense that your life is not what it ought to be? Do you have any sense that um, I get, keep getting caught in addictions and stuck in habits that I hate? I keep falling into the same traps again and again. Do you see that your life is not what it ought to be? Well, Jesus came to deal with it. He came to actually forgive you and remake you. Give you his spirit to empower and strengthen you to fight against sin. To no longer be a captive to sin. To no longer be enslaved by sin. But to be free from its power. Free from its penalty. Free from its power. Now I know many of you feel the second problem. Not as many feel the first. But I know many of you feel the first second problem. Um, and, and, you know, there's a whole movement actually arisen in the last couple of years called the self-help movement. There's a whole bunch of books around how you can get self-help. And lots of churches seem to just be self-help churches where you come along to get inspired to do... No, no, no. Um, friends, <laughs> you look at the people around you. Would you. Do you think any of them could give you the ability to change your life? No. And they're all looking at you saying, I don't think you've got the strength to change my life. So why do you think you have? Why do you look at your own life and think, if I just... No, it's not in you to do this. What we need is something external to us. We need a rescuer. We need a saviour. Someone who comes to us from outside to give us a strength that we don't have. And that's exactly what God does. Do you know... Um, Back in the day, there used to be street preachers where um, you'd go into a place in the city and you'd stand on a park and lots of people would stop and listen to street preachers. No one stops to listen to street preachers today. It's probably not a great idea. But back in the day, people stopped. They had no TV, they had nothing else to do. So they'd listen to street preachers. There was a man, in, apparently, in, in uh, one of the parks who was spruiking communism. And uh, he was preaching to a crowd of people about communism and he pointed to a drunk man in the gutter and uh, he said, you know, communism can put a new suit on that man. And across from him was a Christian preacher. And he overheard that comment and he gathered the crowd and said, you know, Jesus can put a new man in the suit. That's a good line, isn't it? You see, Jesus actually promises not just an external transformation, he, he promises a whole new heart a recreation and his spirit coming and dwelling with you, being baptised in the spirit. He promises the penalty of sin being forgiven and the power of sin being broken. Now, what does this mean to us? Well, listen to a testimony I, I read some time ago about a Muslim man. Listen to what he says. When I first became a Christian many years ago, my life was filled with many dirty things that I knew were displeasing to God. My problem was that I didn't have the power to change, even when I wanted to change. I tried to change things in my life a lot of different times and a lot of different ways, but nothing ever lasted. I kept going back to the way I'd always lived. However, the day I was saved and Christ became real to me, 
my heart radically changed. I immediately learned that God was willing to give me both the desire and the power to change my life. He's talking about baptism in the Spirit. Which if you become a Christian, you have had. Now what does that mean? Does it mean now you can walk in triumph, conquering every habit and every addiction? No, it's not like that. You've got to keep in step with the Spirit. It doesn't just happen to you. You've got to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You've got to fight the addictions, but you can do it now prayerfully. You can do it prayerfully that God, by His Spirit, is at work in you, giving you a power that you otherwise wouldn't have. And over time, it takes, usually, not, not always, but usually it takes time. Sometimes God miraculously just liberates you. But most of the time, it takes time to step out, step out, fight, pray, trust. And the Lord God grows you. He will. It will take years, but He will. Let me finish. The Old Testament is united to the New because God has written both books and it anticipates the coming of the Lord and King of the universe to deal with sin, our great problem, that the power and penalty might be taken away, that the presence of God might now dwell with us. Do you know these realities? Pray God you do. And continue to walk in them. Let me pray now. Heavenly Father, we ask please that you might help us appreciate the wonder of what Jesus has come to do. That he is the Lamb of God who has taken away the sin of the world. Thank you that he is the one who comes to baptise in the Holy Spirit. To immerse your people in a new experience of you. That you might dwell in our hearts by faith. We pray please that those of us who have experienced this coming to you might realise that the penalty and the power of sin have been dealt with, that we might walk in newness of life. I pray for those amongst us who don't yet know this experience, that you might bring them to that point tonight where they see their desperate need to be forgiven and to be renewed and that you might do that work in their hearts even tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.